And what you're about to hear is God's word. Let us respond with attentiveness and faith. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, "Uh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. My dear friends, Faith Church, in Jesus' day, people disagreed as to who he was. In the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, 19th verse, we read, there was a division among them concerning him. They were not at all agreed who Jesus was. They must have argued about it in the synagogue, in the mall, marketplace, in their homes. Who is Jesus? Question for which people had a great variety of answers. And you know, that difference, that disagreement as to who Jesus was has come down to the present day. Today, people are not at all agreed as to how the question should be answered, who is Jesus? Now, if it were just a matter of a difference of opinion out there in the world, some have this idea, some have that idea about Jesus, it wouldn't be much concern. But you know, in the church, among people who go to church today, among theologians who teach in seminaries, among pastors, There's a disagreement as to who Jesus is and was. This came home to me rather uh, bluntly when I was a student, I'm going back a lot of years again, at the uh, University of Chicago. One of the student associations, I forget whether it was InterVarsity Christian Fellowship or Campus Crusade, one of those Christian student organizations invited two prominent theologians to debate what was the essential truth of the Christian faith. And the two theologians who were invited uh, were Francis Schaeffer, who incidentally had his early theological training at Westminster Seminary, where I was privileged to serve the Lord for 32 years. And incidentally, Greg's dad taught for eight years at the same seminary. Um, Francis Schaeffer was one of these 
He was an internationally known theologian. And the other was Bishop James Pike, who was presiding bishop of the Archdiocese of the Episcopal Church in America in San Francisco, California. And there were 2,000 students. I don't know if that's possible today anymore, half a century or more later. 2,000 students came to the assembly hall to listen to these two theologians, both Protestant theologians, debate what the essential truth of the Christian faith was. I don't remember much about the lecture, but I do remember this. It came down to their disagreement as to who Jesus was. For Francis Schaeffer, Jesus was the divine son of God who became human to live the perfect life that you and I should have lived and didn't, and then to die the death that we deserve to die, who lives and reigns today in glory. Bishop Pike disagreed. He said uh, many wonderful things about Jesus. Great teacher, great moral example, great ethicist. In fact, he thought Jesus was the greatest of religious figures in the world. But he thought that Jesus died and was buried in some forgotten tomb in Palestine. And now we should be asking ourselves, what did he teach? Because he started the Christian faith, and we continued. It became apparent that in Bishop Pike's mind, Jesus was not just another founder of, a, of another religion, like Mohammed founded Islam, but died, was buried, and now his teachings carry on. And the Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, became the first Buddhist. But he's gone. But his teachings carry on. And Joseph Smith founded Mormonism, and so he goes. Although Bishop Pipe said Jesus was the best of the religious founders, he was really similar in that category. Friends, if Jesus is not the ruling son of God at the Father's right hand now. Then the question we're asking ourselves this morning from the scripture is not terribly important. Then we should be asking, what did he teach? What kind of moral life did he recommend? Uh, What was his view of human nature? But since he is the divine son of God who reigns in glory and is our future coming king, then who he is, is of primary importance. So the question we're asking ourselves, because Jesus asked the disciples that question, is at the most crucial fundamental position within the Christian faith. In his hand, says the Bible, are the issues of life. Uh, and our relationship to him makes all the difference in life and death, uh, eternal glory or eternal punishment, um, happiness or misery. So that's a question we're going to ask ourselves because Jesus asked the disciples this question, and there are really two parts to the answers of the disciples that we have here in our text. Who is Jesus? Well, to begin with, the disciples uh, remind Jesus that there's a difference of opinion. 
Some say Jesus reminded them of Elijah, others of John the Baptist, others of Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. The disciples, in responding to Jesus, seem to recount some of the best things being said about Jesus. Uh, I think most people who identify Jesus with one of the great prophets of the Old Testament thought they were complimenting the Lord. These were opinions of people who liked Jesus. And the reason I say that is because it's very obvious from the New Testament that there were some people who had terrible opinions of Jesus. The disciples tactfully don't mention those. The disciples, for instance, in answer to Jesus' question, who do people say that I am, don't say, well, the Pharisees, because the Pharisees said he was demon-possessed, that he was a fraud. In John chapter 12, uh, they call Jesus a deceiver. Uh, their opinion of Jesus, the disciples sort of discounted. And I think that was kind and wise of the disciples because the Pharisees were saying some very cruel things about our Lord. He, was, he had a devil within him. He was born out of wedlock. That's in John chapter um, 8, verses 19 where Jesus said that he came from the Father, and the Pharisees say, where is your Father? And the sarcastic implication was that Jesus didn't know. The Pharisees said that Jesus was a Samaritan. Well, a Samaritan was someone who was half Jewish and half pagan. And so they're suggesting that this unknown father that Jesus wouldn't admit to wasn't even part of the covenant community. Well, we recoil at such blasphemy. So we're discounting that too, and the disciples wisely didn't bring up those kinds of opinions. And that's why I say that when the disciples tell Jesus that they were, many people were comparing him to some of the great prophets, they meant it as compliments. After all, uh, John the Baptist, you know, was Jesus... Uh, was born only six months before Jesus and began his public ministry just a year or two before Jesus did. And in Matthew chapter 3, we have the first statement of the first sermon that John the Baptist preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And less than two years later, Jesus began his public ministry. And in Matthew chapter 4, the first statement Jesus publicly makes is recorded Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I imagine people elbowed each other and said, wow, sounds like another John the Baptist. After all, John the Baptist was, was an evangelist. He, he, he attracted the crowds, and so did Jesus. And So it's understandable how people would compare Jesus to John the Baptist. And after all, that sounds like a compliment. You tell Pastor Greg sometime after a sermon that, uh, well, that sermon reminded him of the power of John the Baptist. He'll take it as a compliment, right? And Elijah, 
Oh, wow, he was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Remember, Elijah was a courageous prophet who stood up against Ahab, that wicked king, and Jezebel, the still more wicked queen, who had threatened to kill him next chance she got. And uh, 750 years later, Jesus came, and he stood up with courage to the leadership of his day, the religious leadership called Herod an old fox. And I suppose some thought, well, <laughs> he's as courageous as Elijah was. In fact, there are some uh, close parallels between Elijah and Jesus. Remember that a widow befriended Elijah on one occasion. But while Elijah was off on his itinerant missionary task, the widow's son took sick and died. When Elijah came back, the widow was in grief. And she said, is this my reward for befriending the prophet prophet of the Lord? Well, Elijah stretched his body over this young boy, and he prayed to God to revive him again, and God heard his prayer, and he presented the revived child to the widowed mother, and increased her joy. And 750 years later, Jesus saw a funeral procession going by. And on the bier was a young child being carried to a burial site. And with compassion, Jesus approached the bier, touched the young child, restored his life, and presented him to the widow of Nan. And some of the folks who witnessed it must have said, wow, just like Elijah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He served the Lord 600 years before Christ came at a time of Israel's apostasy. They had turned their back upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the, the faithful priest said, thou shalt, and the people said, we won't. And Jeremiah was grieved at Jerusalem's waywardness, and he wept over her infidelity to the Lord. He's called the weeping prophet. As a matter of fact, one of the books he wrote is called Lamentations, and a lament is a hymn of grief. And 600 years later, Jesus came. Jerusalem had been rebuilt. And now it was going astray, too, in Jesus' day. And Jesus wept over that restored city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those sent unto you. How often I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Therefore, your house will be left to you desolate. And 40 years later, the Roman army came and destroyed Jerusalem until it looked like a landfill. And it's no wonder people said, wow, he has the same kind of grieving attitude toward the waywardness of Jerusalem in his day that Jeremiah had. And so it was easy for people to compare Jesus to some of the great prophets. 
And as I say, these were opinions that people held who liked Jesus. They thought they were saying something nice. But friends, comparing Jesus to any human being, the greatest of the prophets, reduces to the level of insult. For he is greater than any of the prophets. He is the divine son himself. There are people today, as I said earlier, theologians today, who share the opinion of the Pharisees and still think they are saying some nice things about Jesus. I have a little list of them, but I'll give you just one. His name is Dr. Gert Ludemann. He used to teach at Vanderbilt University in the eastern United States, and now he is professor of New Testament. Yes, he's an ordained minister in the University of Göttingen, Germany, and he wrote a book. And the book is entitled, What Really Happened to Jesus? And this is a quotation, word for word, from that book. We can no longer take the statements about the resurrection of Jesus literally. So let us say quite specifically, the tomb of Jesus was not empty, but full. And his body did not disappear, but rotted away. Unquote. The same professor was quoted in a, in a theological journal in Germany, Evangelische Kommentare, it's the name of it, just means evangelical commentary, as follows. In this interview, he said, we must grant that Jesus was neither sinless nor without error. The church must give up its faith in a so-called risen Lord and settle for a Jesus as a mere human being, but one from whom much can be learned. So he thinks he's saying some nice things about Jesus. Well, that's enough of the uh, opinions. Let's go to our last point, namely the Bible's answer. Who is Jesus? Variety of opinions, and now the inspired answer. To begin with, to answer this question properly requires divine wisdom. Did you notice when Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. <laughs> the right answer to the question, who is Jesus, won't come from some human source. But by my Father in heaven. You see, human wisdom can never, will never confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Human wisdom can well, say some nice things about Jesus. Great prophet, great teacher, great moral example, founded the Christian faith. But will, no one will ever come to a confession of Jesus as the promised Savior of the world unless the Holy Spirit of God touches that person's heart. And if you believe that Jesus is the divine Son and your Savior, it's because... The Holy Spirit touched your heart. Not because you came to that by way of human argumentation. 
In 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, we read, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God lives in him. So that to begin with. To confess Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, the promised Messiah, requires divine wisdom. So apparently, Peter, his heart was touched by the, by the Lord to make this confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the first person to publicly declare his belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Professor Ritterboss of Compton Seminary, from which Greg's dad got his PhD, uh, says that the Catholic theology is correct when they say that the New Testament church begins with Peter because he was the first one to publicly declare that Jesus is the Christ. And that's what the New Testament church is, a body of faith that sees Jesus as the divine Son of God and Savior. Of course, uh, Ritterbos doesn't claim that Peter was the first pope, therefore. Um, as a matter of fact, there are two German... Uh, Catholic theologians, Hans Kung and Karl Rahner, in their study, claim that Peter never was in Rome. Well, that's another issue. But anyway, the, the, the believing community of the New Testament again, it begins with Peter's confession. And I wonder if Peter realized how profound his profession of faith was. Because, you see, when Peter said, Jesus, you are the Christ, he was saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise to Mother Eve in Genesis 3.15 that someone born of a woman would come to destroy the works of darkness and establish the kingdom of God. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he was saying, you, Jesus, are the promised descendant of Abraham through whom all nations of the world would be blessed. That's what the Messiah, Old Testament Messiah, meant. When Peter said, you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he was saying, you are the greater son of the great King David, the one who would be the promised Savior of his people. You, you Jesus, Peter is implying, are the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in, ver in chapter 23 where he says that God would raise unto David a righteous branch and this is a name by which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. You, Jesus, are the one whom the Moses and the prophets anticipated for thousands of years. And then Jesus goes on to say, this confession is the rock foundation of the Christian church. For we read, you're blessed, Peter. The Lord revealed this to you. And I tell you that you are Peter. And that word in Greek means a little stone, sort of like rocky. And upon this rock, but that's a different word in the original, that second word means boulder, <laughs> like the rock of Gibraltar. I will build my church. 
Well, what's the boulder? Peter is the rock. Firm, courageous, convictional. Well, what's the boulder? Well, the boulder is the confession that Peter made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, because that's the foundation of the Christian church everywhere. Everywhere, regardless of denominational identification, where people accept Jesus as the promised Savior of the world, put their trust in him, that's the boulder, the rock upon which the church is built. Who is Jesus? <laughs> well, the Bible answers that question. In John chapter 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word. Why does John use the term Word in reference to Jesus? Well, because words are the best means of communication from my heart and mind to you now. So Jesus is the absolute best communication of the Heavenly Father and his loving concern for a lost world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Heavenly Majesty. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. We're not going to say a bit less. In John chapter 17, Jesus great high priestly prayer includes these words, Father, glorify yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world began. He is the eternal Son of God. And to mention just one more, Hebrews chapter 1 begins with these words. God, who in times past spoke unto us by the prophets, oh, Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews, is going to make a distinction between the prophets and Jesus when he says, God, who in times past spoke unto us by the prophets, has in these latter days spoken unto us by a son, whom he has declared the heir of all things, who, after he had provided purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. And we're not going to say anything less. Who is Jesus? He's the son of the highest and the friend of the lowest. He is the Lord of glory, but he's also the compassionate Savior. At the Father's right hand, he hears the angelic chorus sing, holy, holy, holy. But those same ears are always tuned to hear the faintest call for mercy and forgiveness and salvation. Elijah was great. So was Jeremiah. But a greater than either is our Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11 says that God has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name. That name, whether shouted from the pulpit or whispered in the ear of the dying, 
brings peace and comfort and salvation to all. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousands to my soul. He's the lamb, the worthy lamb of the book of Revelation, unto whom be glory and honor, wisdom and might forever and ever. And one day, pray that it may be soon. One day, the heavens above us are going to split open and the sight of his glory will make the mountains shake. And then every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's our privilege to bow our knee now and not wait for that day when we won't, won't have a, a choice to his ever, everlasting glory. Please, please pray with me. Oh, Father, keep us faithful to your gospel, which centers in the person and work of your Son, our Lord. And may we be confessors in our day, as Peter and the other disciples later became confessors in their day, to our glorious Lord, our only hope, and our assurance forever that we belong to you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.